Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about hypocrisy and intensity. I may be intense to a fault, but I'm not hypocritical on the question of hypocrisy. I want to deal with the issue from a couple of different perspectives, both personally and dealing with, once again, one of the issues of the day. But before I go down that path, I want to raise a question about wisdom, which may branch me over a little bit from this week's show to the next week's show, with a question of you know, what has happened to the state of wisdom in the last maybe one to 2,000 years. It seems to me that there's a great deal of wisdom that can be found in Judaism. And part of the reason that the um, Christian church still holds both what they call the Old Testament and the New Testament together in the Bible is because of the storytelling that is available there. The prophecies are crucial, of course, to Christianity. But the books of wisdom get referred to as often as anything else. You will hear quotations from Psalms, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes just as often as you will any particular prophet or certainly anything from the books of uh, Judges or Chronicles. But at the time of the Diaspora, when Jews were scattered about to the four corners of the earth after uh, Rome showed up around the A.D. 70 mark and leveled Jerusalem and destroyed the temple completely, in a certain way, the influence of Judaism faded at that point in time. And what we counted on for the wisdom of that age was Christianity. And you end up with writings like the letters of Paul and um, the other Christian scriptures, but also other documents of the time, books that I used to read when I was uh, studying religious studies at the university level called uh, you know, the Doctrines of the Early Church. There's a great deal of wisdom there and a great deal of focus on answering some of the big questions. And a lot of things that you see in our modern age in the sciences of uh, physics and mathematics have a grounding that goes all the way back to the point in time of the early church leaders, raising questions about the nature of time and the origin of the world. But of course, that faded as well. And without having done a whole lot of research on this topic, it seems clear to me that during what we call the Middle Ages and certainly the Dark Ages, when Christianity was fighting between Catholicism and what would become the Eastern Orthodox Church, a lot of the world's wisdom was held by Islam. And if it weren't for the you know, uh, Northern African and the uh, Southern Spain holdings of what we might call library works or the wisdom of the day, we might have lost even more ground during those uh, dark times of plagues and feudalism. But I look at Islam today and I wonder where that wisdom has gone. Because again, when Christianity stopped asking questions about the origin of the world and the nature of time uh, and how science interacts, you know, in this, that period before what we call the Renaissance, Islam held it. But Islam today doesn't seem to be all that interested in answering these types of questions. The public image of Islam, both from the political Islamist movement, but also from some of the, you know, the more insular clericalism that you see, is more likely to denounce someone for asking those questions than it is to provide the answer that is true within Islam's own heritage. And that, in some respects, reminds me of Christianity emerging or even going through that period of dark ages. In the interim, I think wisdom has belonged in the secular world ever since what we call the modern period, post-Renaissance. Um, it's the secular world where a lot of the science and research has been done. And some of that science and research has been done with a particularly political bent, just like some of the um, 
Christian thinkers developed scientific discoveries because they went looking for what God had done. A lot of the advances in the last 150 to 200 years can be described as people who have made scientific advances because they particularly went out to look for what God could not possibly have done. And we end up with an age of scientific discovery that is, you know, really unmatched from a period of uh, results per year, for want of a better word. But I'm beginning to fear that the secular world has also come into that same period of dark ages that we saw um, with Judaism under the heel of the Romans, with Christianity after the schisms and during the dark ages, and with Islam from its emergence onto the world stage and its perhaps inability to connect that to the heritage of its past. What do we do when secular thinkers also become insular, stop looking for the big answers, and start protecting their turf? It is precisely that same problem that we saw in these other eras. And what comes after secularism? I don't know. And it's a frightening thought. Because we may be standing at a point in history when wisdom itself is about to go away. Because when the secular thinkers have a list of questions we're not allowed to ask because they don't like the potential answers, they become just as much a theocratic type oligarchy as anything that any of these world religions before had put into play. I'd like to talk from a Christian perspective about where wisdom is, because my hope would be that perhaps some form of theistic religion could step up. Perhaps we could repeat the cycle. Because other, other than that, if we're told that there are certain questions we're not allowed to ask by the people who don't feel that they're beholden to any faith, then where do you go from there? So let's walk through this from the perspective of Christian heritage so I can speak just a little bit, kind of lay a foundation on the question of where I think Christianity has missed the mark and where the thoughts that I'm going to share for the rest of the show kind of come into play, not just on the topic, but also with our different drummer. We're not thinking enough, and we're not thinking enough because we're failing to be the church that we were called to be from a Christian perspective and from a secular world perspective, from a non-Christian perspective. We're not thinking enough either. And perhaps somewhere in this, there'll be a calling to wisdom, um, both from inside the church and from outside the church. But I want to start with Judaism. Quoting from the Torah, from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And I want you to listen carefully to it, because I'm going to offer what could be conceived of as a parallel track from Christian scripture. And notice what the key difference is. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding to you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away and when you lie down and when you rise. Bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead and write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now I want to share the same kind of question from a Christian perspective. And do so by citing Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 28, which actually echoes parallel passages in Matthew's gospel, in particular, uh, chapter 22, verse 37 there. But I picked uh, chapter 10, uh, verse 25 on purpose, because I like where it leads. I like what follows it. And listen carefully to the comparison and the contrast between what Jesus says and the scripture that he's directly referring to. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, 
you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Now, this isn't an attack on Judaism, because notice that the uh, Jesus is a Jew, speaking to a lawyer who is a Jew, and Jesus and the lawyer agree on what the scripture says, and the scripture quotation is different in this New Testament account from what is in the book of Deuteronomy. But remember that the difference is being cited by Jews. So it's not that Judaism was lost on this concept. But in both cases, you're being asked to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. It's in Christian scriptures that the emphasis becomes more important on loving the Lord with all of your mind. And one of the things that I see lacking in the church today, uh, the Judeo-Christian church universal today, perhaps, is this notion of loving the Lord with all your mind. Perhaps the Christian church in particular, the you know, right wing of the Christian church, needs to understand that uh, God does not have an opposition to certain questions being asked. God is not opposed to us exploring what the evidence around us suggests the answers would be, because he wants us to love him with all of our mind. Now, how does this play out? And why is Luke's passage so important to me? Because it leads directly to the parable of the good Samaritan. Um, the lawyer asks following this, well, if I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus proceeds then to talk about the parable of the good Samaritan. I'll save my thoughts on that parable for another day and focus it toward a slightly different topic. And yet somehow it will still be wrapped up in these questions of what is hypocrisy and where, where should our intensity lie on some of the key issues of the day. But essentially what Jesus is saying is that your, your ability to have the knowledge of God, your ability to, to live out your calling depends largely on what you do for others. And in the parable of the, uh, the Good Samaritan, it's what you're doing for others who are regarded as outcasts, what you're doing for others who are regarded as the least of these, what you're doing for others who are unwelcome in society. Because the key part of being a Samaritan in Jewish society is that you would be viewed as a, as a mixed breed, as a, as a half-breed, as an outcast, as a sinner, as somebody who had failed the standard of true Judaism. And I'm wondering if a lot of Christians today, who if they exercise the love of God with all their mind, in addition to their heart, and their soul and their will, wouldn't have to answer for the things they're not doing for the Samaritans around them. That perhaps we're not doing a good enough job as a church of identifying the Samaritans around us. We fail when we stop at chapter and verse, and we forget about relationship. Because Christianity, in my mind, distinguishes itself from the other theistic religions in being built primarily around relationships, and in the case of this particular passage, around relationships with people who are victims of abuse and exclusion in our society. When this and other biblical perspectives fall apart, the world of Christianity that had dominated the Middle East and Europe at that time fell to the wayside, and wisdom was left in the hands of Islam. And thank goodness for where we stand today, as a culture and as a world society, that it did. It turns out Muslims did a better job of preserving that wisdom than a lot of the Christians who were in charge of this world at the time. I bring this up to talk about hypocrisy. It is very easy for these three world religions to stare down each other and, and issue claims one direction or the other. But the truth is that the wisdom cited by Jesus is the wisdom of Judaism. And the fact of the matter is that for many hundreds of years, uh, perhaps all the way until we get to the point of the Protestant Reformation, Christianity as we knew it dropped the ball completely. And uh, so there's, there's no point in pointing fingers in this respect. And the call that I would make is, at what point are we um, collectively as a world, not just the religious people of the world, but also the, the non-sectarian people of the world, going to renew our minds 
and say, let's go back to the point of saying, hey, we've got to think these things through. We've got to be willing to ask dangerous and inappropriate questions. Now, I come to this with a great deal of intensity. I had an employee once back when I was working in the record stores who approached me and said, you know what? Maybe you should think about getting into another line of work besides uh, retail or managing a retail store. And I said, well, why would you even suggest that? I usually have a good time when I'm at work. And his perspective was that I wasn't showing that good time because in his mind, being intense, being focused, being driven was a bad thing, that that was all a sign of stress and that there was no such thing as good intensity. And uh, so he said, you know what? If you found another line of work, you would probably be happier. And I said, Chuck, you know, I'm going to disagree with you on that. And here's why. Because you're making an assumption that, first off, you're making the assumption that me being intense is me being unhappy. And that's really not true. But you're also making the assumption that if I went to a job where everything seemed a little bit more straightforward and there was less of a day-to-day, are we going to make the numbers and be able to pay our bills approach, like a civil service kind of a role, like a garbage collection, for example. And he nodded. And I said, And I got a really, uh, a fake, granted, but a really intense look on my face and tried to heighten the sense of intensity. I said, you mean to tell me that you don't think there's a right way to collect garbage? There's a right way to collect garbage and there's a wrong way to collect garbage. And I would strive at all times to make sure that we collected garbage in the best way possible. And if you don't believe me, if you have doubts about whether there really is a right and a wrong way to gather the trash, I'll just point to one movement, environmentalism. Intensity is really independent of the joy that you get from the work or the quality of the work that you do. And therefore, for our conversation today, intensity is one lever and hypocrisy is another lever. And you can have a really low degree of hypocrisy and still have a great deal of intensity. And you can have a really high degree of hypocrisy and have almost no intensity or a lot of intensity. These things work independently of each other. And so I don't necessarily see the two as being uh, good in combination. I see them independently. And I guess an example of somebody who's high hypocrisy and low intensity would be somebody who, you know, on the outside is very polite to other people and supports what we would call, quote unquote, good causes. But on the inside has a very serious and pungent form of discrimination, of perhaps racist feelings, racial hatred. Um, Just because that person is nice and pleasant and friendly doesn't mean that that person is not being a, a hypocrite by making distinctions about people that ought not be made based on the things taught to us by Jesus, among others, Paul in particular, or just by, frankly, the way that we ought to live our lives in harmony with one another, with an understanding that we face as humans, a common human set of dilemmas and a common uh, human set of joys. So you can see that, you know, just because somebody seems to be nice and friendly on the outside doesn't mean that you can gauge what's inside their heart. But every now and then we encounter somebody who is confrontational and rude on the outside as well, in addition to having a point of view which can only be called hypocritical. I'm going to refer us to something that happened during the month of February on the floor of the U.S. Congress, the House of Representatives, during a late night debate over questions of funding. The United States has budget issues at all levels of government. A lot of the things happening in states which are controversial are particularly intense right now because states are struggling to balance their budgets. And part of the reason for that is that states have unfunded mandates or only partially funded mandates that come their way from the federal government. And the federal government is trying to balance its budget. Because if you look at things just like the uh, the war on terror alone, we have some things that we're doing in our government which fall well within our constitutional boundaries, which cost a tremendous amount of money and for which we have very little quality 
planning. Uh, in fact, we spent eight years in the George W. Bush presidency arguing that uh, having a strategic plan for how to fight a war was in and of itself a big mistake that you should never do. Um, you would console your enemies if they had a sense of what you thought was going to happen or what your goals were, which I think is probably a very naive point of view and one that I hope as a nation we learn from. But on the House of Representatives just a few days ago, the debate over whether to defund Planned Parenthood to try to save what is, compared to some of the other expenditures, a very small number in our budget, turned into a debate over abortion because a uh, Representative Smith from New Jersey, a Republican, took the floor and, although abortion was not directly a piece of the funding that was being discussed at all, chose to take it in the direction of an abortion. And as so often happens, when there's this element of zealotry, when you get um, a certain amount of intensity in play, he described the procedure because in his mind, perhaps most people still don't understand what abortion is. I challenge that idea. I think that most people have a very good idea what abortion is, that it has been shown to us in pictures and on websites and in homemade documentaries. And it, it, the debate has been pretty clear. This is, this is not an area where anybody is scratching their head saying, yeah, I wonder what that's really all about. But in the, along the way, he implied that this was something that women were accountable for which is not a concept I disagree with. We'll get to that idea later. But accountable before, because in his mind, they were casual about it, they were ignorant about it, they were cavalier about it, that it was, a, that it was not an important thing, that it was a trivial matter. And that inspired this response from a California Democrat named Jackie Spear. For what purpose does a gentlewoman from California rise? Move to strike the last word. Gentlelady is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, I had really planned to speak about something else, but the gentleman from New Jersey has just put my stomach in knots. Because I'm one of those women he spoke about just now. I had a procedure at 17 weeks, pregnant with a child that had moved from the vagina into the cervix. And that procedure that you just talked about was a procedure that I endured. I lost a baby. But for you to stand on this floor and to suggest, as you have, that somehow this is a procedure that is either welcomed or done cavalierly, or done without any thought, is preposterous. To think that we are here tonight debating this issue, when the American people, if they are listening, are scratching their heads and wondering, what does this have to do with me getting a job? What does this have to do with reducing the deficit? And the answer is nothing at all. There is a vendetta against Planned Parenthood, and it was played out in this room tonight. Planned Parenthood has a right to operate. Planned Parenthood has a right to provide services for family planning. Planned Parenthood has a right to offer abortions. Last time you checked, abortions were legal in this country. Now, you may not like Planned Parenthood. So be it. There's many on our side of the aisle that don't like Halliburton. 
And Halliburton is responsible for extortion, for bribery, for 10 cases of misconduct in the federal database, for a $7 billion sole source contract. But do you see us over here filing amendments to wipe out funding for Halliburton? No, because frankly, that would be irresponsible. I would suggest to you that it would serve us all very well if we moved on with this process and started focusing on creating jobs for the Americans who desperately want them. I yield back. Although I've only played one of the two speakers, it's actually been hard to find anyone who's been willing to post the comments of Smith online. I didn't have any trouble finding uh, a public record of Representative Spears' comments. Both of them, though, you know, pretty much high on the intensity rating. And my thought is, is there, a, is there a hypocrisy charge that we can level here? And it's not a matter of saying, well, one of these two is right and one of these two is wrong. I'll get to that idea in a minute. Independently of that, is there a, a charge of hypocrisy that can be raised here? On the one hand, you could look toward Spear and her acknowledgement that she had had an abortion as an example of some form of hypocrisy. But I don't think that's true. For one thing, she wasn't speaking as someone who had had an abortion herself and was now denouncing it or anybody else who'd had one, too. That would be an example of hypocrisy if it weren't followed up by some sort of an explanation for why she had the change of heart. And even then, I think she'd have to be very careful about being too critical of other people who had taken the same life journey she did and made the same decision that she did along the way. So I don't I don't see any hypocrisy there because she's speaking in in favor of us having much greater sensitivity toward people facing a life choice, which many of us will never have to walk through ourselves, and not getting a whole lot of societal support for that decision. If anything, the comments of Representative Smith was an indication that the, a lot of people still want there to be very much a scarlet letter here. And as long as you maintain a scarlet letter that anyone who's had an abortion or anyone who's considered having an abortion as some sort of a pariah, then you're going to maintain the necessity for us to be very careful about how we handle its legality, or frankly, if it ever gets banned, how to handle its illegality. We'll have to be very careful about that. Which makes me turn my thoughts to Smith, who has a couple of hypocrisy charges I think that ought to be leveled against him. One, you're not bringing up a debate about abortion in a funding argument where abortion isn't an element of the funding being discussed. The actual funding being discussed in this conversation was quite specifically the only parts of Planned Parenthood that get any federal funding. Now, none of that is abortion through any of the uh, previous laws that have been passed. What was actually being talked about was removing the funding for things like cancer screenings, sexually transmitted disease treatment, family planning, prenatal care, postnatal care. These things have been described by many as um, techniques that actually save lives and reduce or prevent even unwanted and unintended pregnancies. So in some ways, defunding these things could, I don't want to be too bold here and say that they inevitably will, but they certainly could lead to more of the abortion that the congressman so uh, you know, passionately spoke against. And the other problem from a hypocrisy perspective is not only was his legislative goal going to generate more of the abortion that he was decrying, not only was he speaking about defunding something that wasn't being funded in the first place, but more specifically, his implication that women who have abortion procedures performed 
Our um, ignorant, thoughtless, callous, cavalier, unconcerned about what it really means or what they're really doing uh, was what so outraged uh, the other representative that led her to speak in the first place. There's undeniably a level of hypocrisy there because to me, the standard that we can use, and it's certainly a Christian standard that we can use, going all the way back to this parable of the Good Samaritan, is why don't you try, try on the shoes? If you haven't walked a mile in the other person's shoes, if you can't demonstrate that you've at least mentally walked that mile in the other person's shoes, then there's a really good chance that whatever you say, especially if it's really dogmatic, is going to be just rife with hypocrisy. You've got to be willing to say, I'm asking you to do something different than what you're doing before because I understand what it means to you. I've got an understanding of where you are today. I also have an understanding of where I want you to be in the future. And the attitude that was conveyed on the floor of the House of Representatives was essentially one that said, I despise where you are today and I don't care where you are in the future. That falls below any of the standards of wisdom that we're likely to find in the genuine wisdom writings of Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. And frankly, it's clearly running afoul of the secular standard that we have today for wisdom. So it's a major problem. You know, part of the reason that Chuck had an issue with me in the store those many years ago was that I came into that store from the outside. I moved to the town from a different town. I was the new guy in town, new sheriff in town. And at first, I didn't put a whole lot of new rules in place. You sometimes hear this talk, and you often hear it with regard to presidents and CEOs. You know, what are you going to do in your first 100 days? And I think it's a relevant question to ask if somebody is actually involved you know, in the, in the political process. But I don't know that I'd like that question being asked to somebody who became the president of the United States as a genuine political outsider. You know, if you're not part of the federal court system, if you're not in Washington as either a senator or a representative in Congress or even a lobbyist, if you're somebody who's truly the kind of candidate I'd like to see, somebody who's genuinely an outsider, maybe you've testified before Congress, maybe you've picketed or something, but a true outsider, you know, what you do in your first hundred days is a tough question because I think until you get in there and see with your own two eyes what's happening – you might not know what you really need to change. It would be hypocrisy, in other words, to come in with this really intense agenda of everything you're going to fix if you do not understand what's actually going on. You can't fix it until you've diagnosed it, right? So I, go, I come to the store as a new manager, and there wasn't a lot of things I was even all that eager to switch around. But unfortunately, there were two or three things that I was seeing that I just couldn't ignore. One was that the store didn't have a problem with being shortchanged or being balanced at the cash register, but they had had shortchanged situations that had hit them before. So they weren't immune to coming up short on the cash register or over on the cash register because of, you know, either um, an intentional act by the cashier or an intentional act by the customer. So things at the cash wrap could be a little bit better. So that was the only thing I was really looking at to say, are we doing what's right here? Because in all the time that I'd been at any of the other retail organizations I'd ever worked in, coming up short was a pretty rare thing. And being the victim of a short change artist was even rarer. And what I was seeing from Chuck and others that I sought to immediately address was that they just had some bad habits. They were not developing what I considered to be the good routine of cashiering, where you're managing your drawer, the customer decides what they want to pay you with, you decide how you're going to give them change, but the transactions move very smoothly, and you don't allow things to interrupt you. So we would have situations where the cashier in the middle of a transaction would answer the telephone. I had to shut that down. I said, no, I mean, your job as the cashier is to take care of the customer who's actually ready to pay us money. Don't mess that up. 
Don't answer the phone. Don't expose us to the risk of, of getting this purchase wrong. And don't expose the customer to the risk of you unintentionally ripping them off because you're trying to do two things at once. Uh, the cash the cash register is too important of a point in that retail store environment. And the other thing that I shut down was the way they were managing their coin. And a lot of this comes down to the end of the night. At the end of the night, you'd see a lot of uh, activity from the cashier that just didn't make any sense to me. They would be completely out of pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, and would wait for a customer to come up and make a purchase. And again, in, in the record store, you know, in this era, this is pre-debit card or just right around the time that we're beginning to understand what a debit card would be. Most of your transactions are cash. Uh, unless people are buying a box set or coming in with a huge list, like a birthday list or a Christmas list, most of your purchases are one or two or three items, and almost all those are in cash. You'd see the cashier spend the last hour or even two hours of their shift trying to avoid having to count what is more or less an entire roll of quarters or an entire roll of pennies, and they wouldn't open them until they absolutely had to. And what I told my people was, listen, if you don't have four pennies, if you don't have three quarters, crack the next roll open now. It's okay for you to be counting 53, 54 pennies at the end of the night. It's okay for you to be counting a similar number of quarters because what's not okay is you being unable to give the customer change back in the way you're accustomed to getting it. And frankly, probably in the way the customer is accustomed to receiving it. Uh, it just creates conflict and unnecessary distractions. If you're cracking open rolls or if you're giving customers back seven, eight, nine dimes because you didn't have any quarters to give them when a roll of quarters was sitting there. And that led me to the other problem. Sometimes the roll of quarters wasn't sitting there. I, I would have situations where we would have to go back to the back to get coins or even dollar bills for a cashier who'd allowed themselves to run so low on the ability to make change on even the most basic transaction that the customer is essentially standing there at the register waiting for somebody to go back, open up the safe, and do a transaction at the safe to bring the necessary small change and small coin back to the cash register. I said, guys, that's unacceptable. The second you crack open your last roll of pennies, your last roll of dimes, nickels, quarters, I need to know then. I want you at all times to have the next roll waiting to go. And that means I have to increase the baseline level of petty cash that's in the drawer at all times from what the previous manager had done. I'm going to do it because I don't want your ability to make change to create a bad customer service situation, or to put crosshairs on my back saying, yeah, there he is, he's going to the safe. I would prefer for everyone except maybe the people at the register to not know when I'm going to the restroom versus when I'm going to the safe. And I felt vulnerable by that. Now, part of the reason I had a sensitivity and my intensity was high on this was that at the previous place that I'd worked, I had been staring down the barrel of a gun. I had been the victim of an armed robbery at the cash register. And that's a story I won't share today. I'll talk about it at another time because in some ways, has a funny side to it. But I never wanted one of my employees to be in that situation. So the other problem that we had to address was that oftentimes at about five minutes or 10 minutes before close, one of the cashiers would go into his Dropbox where he would put all the excess $20 bills because, again, we're a cash business. You could be doing five, ten thousand $10,000 in cash through one register over the course of a busy day. Now, this uh, employee would get into his cash box and pull up all of his 20s, 50s, and 100s and count them right there on the counter sort them out, and then put them on a no-sale transaction, put them right back into his drawer. And I thought, guys, I'm trying not to be the new sheriff in town and throw my weight around here, but that has got to stop. And one of the cashiers challenged me. I said, he told me that I was being hypocritical, that the most important thing to me was that, that he always be even and that we get out on time. And that by doing this little step earlier, he was going to be able to count his cash register drawer down faster. We were going to be able to close the book sooner and that he was going to get the goal of being out on time. Now for him, probably if he was honest with me, he would say being out on time or even being out early was more important than being even because he really wanted 
just to you know start the rest of his night. He was a college age guy. You could see how the difference between nine fifteen and nine thirty or nine forty five could be a big deal on having a really great night out. But I told him, I said, you're putting everybody in the store at risk because even though we were embedded inside a shopping mall, we were in a shopping mall that was very close to an external exit, and we were in a shopping mall that had a lot of traffic from our neighbors. We were right across from the food court. We were two doors down from the movie theater. We were three doors down, if you want to put it that way, from the from the external exit. The exit for the mall that we were near was to the back of the mall, meaning that if somebody came in with guns and robbed you, it's very unlikely that the police would happen to be driving by and see it because they'd have to be in the mall parking lot, in the back of the mall. Um, and although we never had an armed robbery that we experienced, the jewelry store across the way did. They had somebody in there with guns doing a break, grab, and dash kind of situation. And so I asked uh, Jimmy in this case, I asked him, I said, if you were going to rob my store, when would you come in to do it? Five minutes after we open or five minutes before we close? You're a smart guy. When would you come in and rob this register? And he said, well, I'd want to get as close to close as possible so that as much cash would be there as possible. I said, yeah. So you're putting yourself in danger. You're putting all your coworkers in danger because you're putting your interest in getting out five minutes earlier, 10 minutes earlier ahead of all the good principles of cash management. You can't be a cashier for me. You can't be somebody who's got a leadership role in my store for me if you don't correct this behavior immediately. And that was the kind of intensity that my friend Chuck strongly objected to. The deal here, though, was I wasn't being hypocritical. I wasn't speaking for some random hypothetical chance that might not happen. The armed robbery I experienced was actually five minutes after the last movie started and and 15 minutes before we closed the doors for the night. It was at exactly that point in time. And so there was a legitimate danger there in terms of the behavior. Plus, it just wasn't good common sense. Anything that interrupted the customer handing you money and you giving them change back was always going to be a mistake, whether that be answering the phone, um, digging up a lot of large bills and counting your cash at the register in front of people, or not being able to make people change with quarters, dimes, and pennies because you didn't bother to open your quarters, dimes, and pennies and just hoped you could give people all nickels back so you could avoid the hassle of having to change things. But that, that intensity wasn't negative. I wasn't calling people names. I was turning to Jimmy and I was saying, you're a smart guy. You understand risk and danger. Where's the risk? Where's the danger? And can you tell yourself what the responsible course of action was? And I was turning to Chuck and I was saying, you know, you're one of my best cashiers. I count on you. What are the, what are the skills you've got to drive this? You can count. You can count coins and you can count cash very quickly, very efficiently, very accurately, and very effectively. You don't even need a calculator. If I just give you a couple of minutes with a drawer, you can count that drawer back down to its starting point of 100 bucks, 120 bucks, whatever, and tell me exactly how much is in the drawer that's profit without even using an adding machine. If you've got that skill, why are you so afraid to exercise it? Why in the world would you put the fact that you might have to count a little bit more, get in your way of doing really excellent work. And it's that sort of intensity that they were reacting to. But again, I was walking the walk saying, I've been through this experience before. It was unpleasant. I never want to put anybody who works for me through that same kind of experience again. What can we do to prevent somebody from feeling like they can take advantage of us at the cash register because our cashiers are always distracted? Distracted by the fact that they're not managing their coin and their cash properly. Distracted by the fact that they're trying to answer the telephone and do other things while they should be taking care of the customer, whatever it might be. And it's that kind of intensity that I think is the one time that anybody's actually called me on it and said, dude, you are way too stressed out. You need to let this go. But the reality was, I think that the people who worked for me just needed to be smarter, work smarter, 
And sometimes working smarter means that you you know, don't have to work as hard because you come up with inventive and creative techniques that are innovative and make a difference and streamline things. But sometimes working smarter does mean that you have to do just a little bit more hard work because it's the right way to do things. It's this notion of doing what's right that you hear in that passage in Deuteronomy that is laced all the way through the parable of the good Samaritan. And it's those kinds of voices we need to hear again. We need to be willing to listen to the voice of history or the voice of God saying, hey, don't be a hypocrite. Use your mind. Be brave. Be bold. Be intense about it as you need to in the right measure. Ask yourself the next question. Put yourself in the other person's shoes. So to Representative Smith of New Jersey, do you really believe that any woman goes to get an abortion performed as some sort of sport on some sort of lark for kicks for thrills, or out of just a complete indifference and a willingness to throw away a few hundred bucks every now and then? Or is there a better question to be asking? And do you honestly believe that if we do less family planning, we'll have less abortion? It's history. And from about that time, 3,500, 3,000 B.C., until about the American Revolution, the figures, Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, their King Gedderick, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events, that that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors, behind the backs of everyone else, steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? at the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. I want to hearken back to my personal mission statement and see whether I'm doing the right thing. Um, Again, it's a good thing. Maybe an intense person would examine himself on a regular basis and look for elements of hypocrisy or elements of not getting the job done anymore. And on the episode for Permanent Things I Believe, I shared this. Uh, It's to serve as an example for the power of faith, family, fidelity, and friendship through my writings, speech, service, or other actions as led by my relationship with God. I have a sense of purpose that I'm supposed to write something I haven't written yet, that I'm supposed to say something I haven't said yet. And a lot of that does connect directly to the inappropriate conversations in this particular show where I'm trying to bring together these ideas of of politics, sex, religion, popular culture, things we're being told that we shouldn't speak about, things that we're being told should be kept separated. I'm all in favor of the separation of church and state from the way we handle our social and political lives. I've spoken to this before, and I meant what I said. However, I don't believe that the separation of church and state means that it's inappropriate to ask religious questions about political issues. Or to ask, you know, whether politics is infecting our religious belief, our religious faith, and the way we manage our sacraments and rituals. I think that we've got to examine all of these things, and in some ways, examining them together makes a difference. But you still have to be answerable to whether or not you're doing what you're responsible for as a member of society, as well as a member of whatever group you're a part of, whether that be the church, whether that be a conservative think tank whatever it might be. We need to cherish and reward those people inside conservative think tanks who are asking questions like, at what point do we need to address the military side of our spending, as well as the Social Security, the Medicare, the health care, and other social programs? That person's not being a hypocrite. And that person is probably going to have to bring a certain amount of intensity to the conversation in order to get the job done. I also think that we need to 
respect and support those people who are inside the um, pro-choice community who do their part, even in subtle ways, to remind everybody that, hey, let's remember the voice of Congressman Spears and her perspective that this is a hard decision because you know that a baby, whether you wanted it or not, it's a baby that is being killed in the process of abortion. And it's hard for people to be able to walk that line because the intensity that most people bring is an intensity to keep these things separated. I, on the other hand, prefer an intensity that brings these things together. And I'm certainly open to being called on it if I'm in any way failing this standard. In the spirit of that self-examination, it's a good time to bring in our different drummer, theologian John Wesley. John Wesley was born in 1703 and died in 1791. In fact, he died March 2nd, 1791, which is roughly 220 years from around the time this is going to be posted, very close to the 220th year of John Wesley's death. Like a lot of the leaders of the Protestant movement, his influence is still very much alive today. There are some key Protestant leaders that we don't really think of in the same way that we think of people like John Wesley and John Calvin and Martin Luther. We have words for these guys. We talk about Wesleyan theology and Calvinist teaching and Lutheranism in a way that we don't really for um, William Tyndall and uh, Ulrich Zwingli, who were nonetheless very influential. When it comes to key Protestant thinkers, I put John Wesley very near the top of that list. One key reason for that is the way that I worship is very consistent with Wesleyan principles. I'm following that same path. And I've noted even from the very first show of Inappropriate Conversations, the irony that I'm part of a Protestant movement that's actually protesting another Protestant movement. I am two generations away, in other words, from Roman Catholicism or Eastern Orthodoxy, because Methodism was essentially a reform of the Anglican Church, the Church of England, and the Church of England was the English response to issues that uh, were prevalent in Roman Catholicism at the time. Now, the Protestant Reformation to me is not necessarily a we-versus-them attack on on Roman Catholicism. A lot of the things that uh, Martin Luther complained about so specifically The Catholic Church chose to address on its own within the next 200 to 250 years. In other words, Luther pointed out a lot of problems, and although the Church at the time didn't see it, the Church over history has gone and, without acknowledging it very boldly, corrected those problems, as if perhaps from an historical perspective, looking backwards, we're in agreement. They didn't address all the issues that Luther cited, so there is still a genuine and legitimate difference between these denominations. In the case of the Church of England, it was largely a secular set and a political set of concerns that led to the split between the Church of England and Roman Catholicism. And I find it ironic today when I meet so many people who are uh, part of the Nazarene Church or the United Methodist Church who feel so strongly that the separation of church and state is somehow a mistake and um, somehow not, not a real historical fact or a real American phenomenon. The irony is that the original formation of the Church of England one generation before was also sort of a way of separating church and state. It separated church and state by letting the state remain in control of a different church, but it was still separating the state from Roman Catholicism, separating it from that particular iteration of the church. John Wesley, in his life, ran into trouble with the Church of England, despite the fact that he continued to identify himself as being part of the Anglican structure all along. One of the things he did that was so influential was he helped organize and form groups of Christians, small groups, primarily at the time in the United Kingdom, but his influence would spread throughout America as well. 
These groups developed intense personal accountability relationships. They worked on discipleship, and they focused on religious instruction among the members. They believed that a church was constructed of all of these different groups coming together. So you could have a very large church, but it was nevertheless going to be a very large church made up of a lot of small groups. These Methodists, as they became known, turned out to be leaders in many of the key social issues of the day, including prison reform and the abolition of slavery. And, particularly their abolition of slavery, ran them quite afoul of many church leaders and many leaders of government. They faced significant opposition. Wesley remained in the Church of England, but his maverick use of church policy put him at odds with many inside the church. The Methodists were persecuted by clergymen and magistrates because they preached without being ordained or licensed by the Anglican Church. This was seen as a social threat, a threat to the order of the day, that they were disregarding key and important institutions. Ministers from the Anglican Church attacked them in sermons and in print, and in times mobs attacked them as well. Wesley and his fathers continued to work, though, for the needs of people who were not represented inside the church. It's an interesting growth and development to learn how Wesley came to be somebody who would even preach outside the walls of the church to begin with. One key moment was a moment that might actually be described as a conversion moment. Ironically, a conversion moment for somebody who had already worked as a missionary and felt very much within the church. In 1738, in a Moravian meeting in Aldersgate Street in London, um, Wesley heard a reading of Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. So Paul's letter to the Romans, um, commentary from Martin Luther about that. And Wesley said that while he was hearing those famous words, my heart felt strangely warmed. In other words, what I would describe as the stirring of the Holy Spirit within him. And that this revolutionized the character of his ministry and the methods of his ministry. Wesley had already been urged by a Calvinist friend that he met in Oxford named George Whitefield to kind of take the church outside the walls, to preach in open air, to try to reach people who worked in the mines and who worked in the farms and who worked in the factories. And Wesley was not at all comfortable at first with this idea. Earlier in his life, he said that he would have thought that such a method of saving souls was almost a sin, that being outside the walls of the church was a problem in and of itself. And it was only through his relationship with Whitefield and some of his other experiences that he came to learn that having the church function outside the walls of the church was its calling. And that in many ways, keeping all access to scripture and prayer uh, inside the walls of the church was in and of itself probably the sin. I want to share a humorous quote that I got uh, just this very day, in fact, from a friend online. I'm, I'm going to read it to you because it's irreverent. I'm not going to provide I'm not going to provide any context. Here's her, her quote. Religion is like a penis. Play with it as much as you want in private, but don't take it out in public. And for the love of all that is good, don't shove it down my throat without at least asking first. You know who you are. So if a shout out to you is necessary, well, there you go, RP. There's your quote being used in context. Um, I disagree with the point of view, but I nevertheless find it entertaining and provocative. And if nothing else, inappropriate. So let's bring it on. Let's talk about this idea. Because on the one hand, she probably is right. You're going to encounter people from time to time who do evangelism as if it's an act of sexual assault. They know the truth. You don't know the truth. Here it is. You're going to take it whether you like it or not. And in that respect, if that's what she's referring to, then I do agree with her, uh, although I probably would have worded it in a slightly different way. On the other hand, I think that this notion that you shouldn't be bringing the, you know, this sort of talk about your privates out in public, that that's sort of equivalent to evangelism, means that evangelism itself is inappropriate. 
Let me ask a question, because I think that the answer is probably pretty obvious to us. If you look throughout the Western world at the kind of activities and behaviors and social rituals that are performed and what we might call singles bars, I think you're going to find that there's an awful lot of sexual evangelism being done there in the sense that a lot of people are talking about how you should learn more about my private parts and how I should learn more about your private parts and what a powerful emotional experience it will be for us to get these things together. And instead of saying, hey, why don't you come join me in church on Sunday? It's like, you know, why don't you come up and see me sometime? But you still have from the context of saying, yes, it would be very inappropriate for somebody in that singles bar to be exposing themselves to unwitting, unwitting patrons or being very forceful and aggressive about an unrequited offer of sodomy. All those points are very well made by my friend. But when it comes to evangelism, evangelism doesn't really equivalent to that. Evangelism is more about people saying, hey, if you're interested in hearing my story, I've got a story to tell. And if you'd like to share your experience, I'm all ears. And why don't we go back to my place, your place, whether it's a place of worship or a place of abode, and talk about these things. Nothing, nothing whatsoever is inappropriate about that. So in my mind, like John Wesley, I have come strongly to believe that this idea that there's a line 10 feet outside the front door of the church, somewhere in the middle of the church parking lot, where all sharing of faith must stop. And that this notion of your faith being an integral and important part of your life is only valid in the square footage of that particular building, whatever you might call your church, is probably severely misguided. And that in fact, for me to understand everything about somebody, I need to understand their faith or their lack of faith. I don't see how our friendship could, could flourish if I don't have some sense of what your story is in that regard. And when I've engaged in kind of very strong relationships, new friendships with people over the last few years, my understanding of their faith journey is a crucial part of it. Sometimes that heartbreakingly includes the story of them losing their faith or the story of them never actually having an open encounter of it because certain things that are probably legitimately true led them to reject any opportunity whatsoever. On the other hand, it has often led me to, to find out what people truly believe, what their faith really is, and for us to share and, and exchange ideas on that regard as well. And this is what John Wesley was essentially accused of doing. If there was a dress code, if there was a class system in place that essentially kept some people outside the church, either because the members of the church had done a very overt job of excluding them, or that they just assumed that they weren't welcome because they were just a dirty minor boy. You know, the bottom line is, Wesley took the scripture and the prayer and the accountability and the hope to those people where they were. And that was revolutionary at the time. And I hope we're not on the verge of becoming a society where that kind of thing would become revolutionary once again. What's the future of wisdom in a time when even the secular scientists and the secular philosophers have decided that there's certain questions we're not allowed to ask anymore? What's the future of faith if we really believe that faith should never be shared? A couple of other things about John Wesley that I'd like to highlight. First off is the self-examination that was out an elemental part of his work. What did these small groups do? What did these holy clubs do when they got together? Well, among other things, they would share what was going on in their lives, and they would challenge each other with questions, devotionally-based questions. I want to share just a few of them that a Step It Up 2010 pamphlet that I was given uh, under the heading Heart Guard covers, again, similar, very uh, Wesleyan ideas. Am I consciously or unconsciously creating the impression that I am a better person than I really am? In other words, am I a hypocrite? Clearly, I believe this is a question that we all need to be asking, whether inside the church or outside, whether in a small group or not. 
Here's another. Do I confidently pass on to another what was told to me in confidence, or can I be trusted? Am I a slave to dress, friends, work, and habits? Am I a slave to style, in other words? I'm wondering if in our modern age, more people wouldn't fail that standard more often than they did back then. Am I self-pitying, self-conscious, or self-justifying? Did the Bible live in me today? Did I give the Bible time to speak to me each day? These are the kinds of questions that a small group in the Wesleyan tradition would ask each other in these holy clubs where the holiness of God was being explored by people who were looking at their religion in enough of a different way that eventually what Wesley was doing became a separate denomination altogether. Just a couple more. Do I get to bed on time and do I get up on time? Well, you know, I would have to answer an accountability group that this is an area that I personally struggle in. I, I'm a late night person as opposed to an early morning person, but that doesn't change the fact that it doesn't make sense to be up later than I should be when I have to be up earlier than I want to be. Am I defeated in any part of my life? Am I jealous, critical, irritable, touchy, or distrustful? As I shared in talking about the content of their character, uh, there was a point in time during the, uh, the period of time that the Columbine High School massacre came that I was actually defeated in part of my life. And you could see it with my irrit irritability and my anger and my distrust that um, losing that job and being forced into a, a different career path and having it happen so suddenly and so, you know, in such a hostile takeover kind of a way really impacted me in a way that really impacted my faith in my spiritual life as well, because it's hard to grow spiritually when you're dealing with that kind of um, defeat in your life. And finally, the last question, it's a big long list, but I'll jump right, right down to the last question. Is Christ real to me? That's a question that Christians have to ask themselves. Ironically, we meet a lot of Christians who in, in an act of hypocrisy, act as if that's a question that they should never have to ask themselves because they're Christian. They're in the club. They're carrying the banner. They're holding on to the mantra. No. John Wesley said that's a question we must ask ourselves. All this from a man who unmistakably walked the walk. Wesley traveled generally on horseback and covered a great deal of miles, preaching two or three times each and every day. Author Stephen Tompkins writes that Wesley rode 250,000 miles, gave away 30,000 pounds, and preached more than 40,000 sermons. He walked the walk. Part of the reason that I wanted to talk about wisdom today was that I want to talk about knowledge next time out. And in doing so, I'm glad that I've got Wesley out in play as a different drummer first, because John Wesley's theology had a lot more to do with knowledge than you might think, just from looking on the outside of a Christian denomination and trying to judge them based solely on their current actions. Something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral comes to mind. In this method, Wesley believed that the living core of Christian faith was revealed in four ways. Scripture, tradition, faith or experiential faith, and reason. He did not divorce faith from reason. Tradition, experience, and reason were all subject to Scripture, but it's really through all four that Wesley functioned. Some of the biggest problems that people have with modern Christianity, particularly Protestant Christianity, are in a lot of you know the aberrant views that you hear so often. If you're watching televangelists on TV, you're not hearing the real deal, or in the fact that we don't 
think seriously enough to answer questions which are hard to handle. You see shortcuts. Wesley regarded Calvinism as having a really big shortcut when it came to the Calvinist view of predestination. That view being that some persons had been elected by God for salvation and others had been elected for damnation. He rejected that. In his mind, God was at work to enable all people to be capable of coming to faith by empowering humans to have an actual existential freedom of response to God. That God's grace was working before you even knew who he was, and at a point in time, you could answer freely, yes or no, to that grace, and then thereby define your relationship with God going forward from that. One of the key people that he disagreed with on this topic was his friend George Whitfield. In 1770, after Whitfield's death, Wesley wrote a memorial sermon, which praised Whitfield's admirable qualities, but acknowledged that they had key differences on some of these theological issues. Quoting from Wesley, there are many doctrines of less essential nature, and in these we may think and let think. We may agree to disagree. But in the meantime, let's hold fast to the essentials. Wesley is in some quarters given credit for being the first to phrase the term agree to disagree, or at least to do so in writing. There's a website called Phrase Finder, or The Phrase Finder, that has quoted this passage and said, you know, agree to disagree is older than the Americas. It's not something that people who, who view that that is an American idiom can really stand up to um, <clears throat> from the perspective of history, that it goes back to Wesley and to this 1770 eulogy he offered for his friend. On the other hand, in the written text of it, the term agree to disagree is in quotations, and it is not clear whether... John Wesley put the quotations there as a matter of emphasis, or whether Wesley himself was quoting someone else. But at least when you go back in history to a certain point and look for the first, the first listing of this idea of we should agree to disagree, the oldest name that we can find to attribute it to is actually John Wesley. Agree to disagree must also, in, in honesty, be one of the principles of this particular show. Inappropriate conversations only work if we keep sharing ideas and to keep having any sort of give and take, you know, however that give and take may present itself. It's important that we keep that in mind. That exchange can happen at the website inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Comments are enabled there. I also respond to email as I get them at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening.